Greetings, friends, and welcome to the latest episode of Darmage. I'm your host, Tanya McGinnity, and I have just recently wrapped up an interview with Yudrin Wangmo. I've met Yudrin in the great cyber sangha that exists. I've been following her for a little while and had the chance to speak with her just regarding meditation, practice, Tibetan Buddhism, her journey on the path, how she got started, and several of her novels for young adults about meditation and compassion. So I hope you enjoy this latest episode. Welcoming to the show today, Yundrin Wangmo, who I've met through Twitter, some Twitter exchanges that we've been having. So it's, uh, it's wonderful to have you on Dharmage today. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. I'm really looking forward to getting, know, getting to know more about you and more about your path. So I guess getting started, that's exactly it is. How did you discover Buddhism? Well, you know, it was interesting. I, uh, I discovered Buddhism originally back in the 80s. I, I first heard, I first was exploring, I was kind of the kind of person, I'm kind of a philosophically minded person and spiritually minded person. And I was... Um, I was looking for a path that was based on practice. It was based on discovering insights for myself and applying them and finding out um, from those truths what resonated with me about the you know particular doctrine of of the tradition I was following. And I was also interested in a tradition that had a lot of um, enlightened masters in it. And a tradition that went way back in time, so it wasn't something that was just invented yesterday by a self-arisen meditation adept, um, because then I wouldn't know if it was reproducible or not. So you can see in the way I talk, I'm a kind of scientifically minded person. I like the experimental model, and that really um, uh, brought me into uh, Buddhism in general. But I had to do, you know, I kind of um, poked around and explored a lot of different um, mystical traditions, like I went to a Sufi event and so on, you know. But what really got me, interestingly, what really got me hooked was um, picking up a book um, called uh, Mother of Knowledge by um, Yeshe Sogya, the wisdom Dakini from Tibet. And this book, was like nothing I'd ever read before. Um, it wasn't like any television plot or any novel plot I've ever read before. Uh, and the spiritual protagonist in it was uh, an amazing uh, woman a thousand years ago, more than a thousand years ago in Tibet. And um, it was crazy. It was full of all sorts of practices I'd never heard of, with mandalas and mandalas inside the body and deities and... Um, a, a guru and very colorful and full of actual kind of heroic spiritual adventures where she'd go up in the mountain and meditate above the snow line in a cave and a, attain great accomplishments and so forth. And it was, um, it was a powerful um, image for me because so much of, I was a very strong feminist and um so much of religion, as we know, is, uh, you know, has men as the protagonists. Mm -hmm. So that in interested me, inspired me um, to eventually, in the early 90s, um, go to a Shambhala center in my uh, area. I was living in Western Mass at the time. Great. And from there, I guess, in terms of... Um participating in Shambhala, um, did you kind of go through the series of paths that they have as part of their, uh, their workshop programs and their meditation? Did that help in, in enriching what you were looking for or did you? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, at the time they were different than they are now mm. and they're both, it's all good. Yeah. But at the time they had several gateways into, um, their organizational practice path. And there was traditional Kagyu, mm -hmm. Kagyu, Kaning Dharma, from the, uh, and then there was this Shambhala Terma, this Shambhala um, tradition that Trungpa Rinpoche started. And I went through the traditional Dharma track. Okay. And so I started with Shamatha Vipassana meditation, which is pretty much the same as what we call mindfulness meditation now. And um, studying Trungpa Rinpoche's uh, books with his senior students. 
and then into Mahayana uh, and uh, Tonglen, these um, practices for becoming a bodhisattva, aspiring bodhisattva. Great. And then I guess from there, like Shambhala was my gateway too. So we'll high five mm-hmm. each other virtually. <laughs> um, yeah, from from there, I guess, uh, you know, what was the uh, the continuing point for you on your journey um, once you uh, once you encountered Shambhala? Well, I, I took refuge with the Sakyam and I love I love the Shambhala centers and I, I love the Sakyam. But I, he, I didn't feel he was my teacher. Mm-hmm. And at that point, they were stressing that you really, you know, if you're going, as you move through the path, you do need a guide. Mm-hmm. And um, so in the process, I ended up moving out to the Bay Area. I affiliated with the local Shambhala Center in Berkeley for a while. And then I went around to, all, to meet all the Tibetan lamas in the area. And as you probably know, uh, or may, may, may or may not know, the Bay Area is just chock full of Tibetan mm. llamas and um, the extended California region even more so. So we're just incredibly fortunate here. And it's one of the things that drew me to the area. And um, I, I, um, at that time, the Shambhala Centers were having llamas come in um, and speak uh, outside their organization. And I met... Um, Lama Tarchin Rinpoche, mm-hmm. um, who is a non-monastic um, lama who is a, uh, a, has a family and has a um, was a great artist and amazing magnetic mm. teacher. Um, really, there I haven't met any lama like him before or since, but everybody feels that way about <laughs> their primary teacher, yeah. right? So. Um, he had a big center that was getting going down in the Santa Cruz mountains called Pema Osulin. Mm-hmm. And, um, he just threw his, all his life force and energy into starting, a uh, this, um, public retreat center, which is very traditional Nyingmapa center. And, um, then also starting uh, a three-year retreat facility at the same time for yogis who really want to, um, explore the path in, in depth in that way. And um, the first time I was, I've been reflecting today on the first time I went down there, like, you know, I, I followed him around town for a while. And he was speaking everywhere and, and doing everything. And uh, I decided this, this guy is my teacher. There's no, I, I, I went, there was no, nobody could hold a candle to him. And I, um, Asked him to be, and I, I went, I've been down to Pemosling, I'd met the Sangha, they were just wonderful people, and a beautiful place. And uh, I, I asked him to be my teacher formally at the Berkeley Shambhala Center, in the back room there, and um, he said, well, you have to come down to summer retreat, it's going to start next week. So I didn't have any money, didn't have any knowledge of what this was going to be about. And I show up there, and sure enough, they're doing the practice of Yeshe Sogya. Oh, <laughs> where you yourself are embodying uh, the Dakini Yeshisogya and uh, as a meditation deity. And in addition, just I'm remembering the, the stark contrast between going from Shamatha Vipassana mm-hmm. practice and sitting, silent sitting practice and being thrown into this cacophonous um, <laughs> shrine room with a huge statue of Guru Rinpoche Pabasambhava up in front very, very colorful, and um, music. So you practice with cymbals playing and drums beating, mm. and you're reciting a text, and it was completely different than anything I'd encountered before, and it was so awesome. Excellent. <laughs> so <laughs> I took to that like a duck to water. Great, and, and, and I guess from there yeah. you uh, you kind of knew you were in the right place, right time, right moment, right practice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I um, I also met up with a couple of other lamas I'm very very close to, um, but all kind of Nyingma and uh, these Terma traditions in the Nyingma tradition. So um, it's been totally satisfying, so rewarding, and um, difficult at times, of course. And I went on to do, uh, you know, a three-year retreat. I've done additional years in retreat and personal retreat. And um, I just ate it up. Uh, so <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy with, with uh, the whole shebang. 
Excellent. And you are a, a teacher as well, too. So after all of this, too, you're, uh, you're continuing and helping to perpetuate the Dharma by, uh, by becoming a teacher as well, right? Well, you know, I'm not actually, they don't make teachers in the um, okay. tradition that I come from. They don't, you know, in some traditions, Kagyu most commonly, mm-hmm. when you do a three-year retreat, you come out and you get, most people get the Lama title and you're not expected to be out giving empowerments mm-hmm. and doing um, major, being a guru to anyone, but you are, you know, instructing people on how to do the practices and you have the, the you wear the uniform, you have the Lama title. But interestingly, in this um, tradition, well, first of all, actually there's plenty of Tibetan Nyingma Lamas and there's one or two um, Lamas that came in through different routes, but nobody of the four of the 40-some, maybe 50 people who've gone through three retreat at our facility have been given that that title. My my Lama now says I can teach if people ask, but the idea is that um, you have qualities and people ask you because you have qualities and oh. not because you have it appointed by somebody. Um, and that doesn't... So people can ask me, and, you know, within, like, you know, the little bit that I feel that I... No, I can I can teach people how to you know how to meditate, how to you know do the practices that I've learned the technicalities of how to do. But I'm not a anybody's um, lama, so um, and that you know frees up. You know, you could look at it two ways. One is you know they're not empowering Westerners and mm. so forth, and the other way is they're freeing us up to not being thrown into a time-consuming, stressful um, leadership situation, spiritual leadership situation, when we probably are not ourselves actually enlightened. Gotcha. So I know in my case, I don't have realization yet. Mm -hmm. I've I've changed so much uh, since that first time I stepped into a Shambhala Center. So much. It's been so beneficial to me. And would you... But but I'm just going to finish up by saying, but I haven't, you know, I'm not, um, I haven't popped. (laughs) In terms of shifting over into a continual state of knowingness, the true nature of reality. Interesting. And and do you think, like, I guess in, uh, I guess, Buddhism in, as it has kind of come to the West, do you think there... There's kind of like that thirsty nature of all of us prowling around wanting that. And and in some ways, you know, you've kind of hit something and it's like no big deal and there's no pressure and that's all good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not not sure if that's a question or not. (laughs) That's kind of a question, I guess. (laughs) Does Does it seem, I guess, that... You know, in, in terms of Western Buddhism, like, or perhaps it is maybe a, a tradition-oriented approach, like, do you feel like, I guess, most of the the people that you encounter, I guess, in, in your environment and online and, and uh, you know, I, I guess... You yeah. know, what I'm seeing is yeah. people, Buddhism, in the last 10 years, like, even in the last five years, are... You know, whatever this is called Buddhism in the United States, I don't, don't know Canada, has um, really completely, it's completely being turned upside down by a lot by the Internet and a lot by the mindfulness stream and a lot by skeptics. Mm. So, and that's something I want to touch on today. Yeah. So there's a huge sort of, trend of secular Buddhism and mindfulness meditation, and it's all good. Um, but I wanted, you know, I'm coming from a little different, different place. And I don't think in this time, if you, you know, I'm a baby boomer, but um, I don't see a lot of the people that I encounter, especially online, because that's where I um, hang out mostly people having faith that there really is such a thing as enlightenment mm. and there, there is a, such a thing as Buddhahood. And, and that, if you, t- if you take away that element, you, um, if you don't believe in enlightenment, um, that a shift can take place, 
in a person so that um, they really blossom their mm. basic goodness, their Buddha, Buddha nature to a great degree. Uh, you know, in the Mahayana, they call it the bo- levels, the Bodhisattva levels, mm-hmm. the Bhumis. And in, in Dzogchen, they just go, they call it realization. Mm-hmm. And then, then you don't believe that, that there is such a being as a Buddha who can see um, beyond what we can see. We have this ordinary vision as a human beings, ordinary senses and so forth. And um, we can't, from, from the scientific point of view of these human um, capacities, we can't um, see, we don't have no way of knowing if there are past lives and future lives, for mm. example. Um, and all those things that are items of faith um, spring from a belief that there could be, and indeed there is, are beings that have superseded our capacity. Mm. So, um, and I can think of a whole lot of reasons to be skeptical and cynical and so forth. But the problem is if you come from a skeptical, cynical place when you enter into your practice, there's, my feeling is Mm -hmm. that there's this kind of shutting down or hardening that can occur. And you get, and use myself as an example. So as I said before, I came into Buddhism as a, um, with a scientific mind of like, I'm a scientific experiment with a, um, but I'm, I'm only, there's only one person in this study and it's me. <laughs> and um, I'm going to just going to, not going to take anything on faith. I'm just going to practice, do this meditation and see what happens. I felt that that took me to a certain place, a certain level. Certainly you can refine your shine or shamatha practice, which is this calm abiding practice known mm-hmm. as now known as mindfulness um, to a point where you're, you're very chill you're much happier than you used to be. You're a better human being and you're more kind. And this is the panacea for humankind. It's very important for human beings to be that way. But it doesn't take you beyond that. And um, I have, I'm still a human being and I haven't surpassed that. <laughs> but I felt that, you know, there was a blossoming in my practice when I started to open up to trusting in this tradition that I'm in, whatever tradition, you know, we're in, sticking to one tr- tradition in my case, and trusting my Lama, there's a lot of reasons why that's important on a person-to-person basis, from from a human-form Lama to a human-form student, I have a lot of blind spots when it comes to my um, practice and my conduct. Mm. And if I don't ever trust and open up to and trust that this other person has got realization beyond mine, my level is beyond my level, then I'm not going to trust him or her when she says, uh, you are, you, you've got some, you're going in the wrong direction in this particular area and you need to shift, you know, or your attitude is screwed up, Mm, (laughs) you know? And, um, so this, that's, that's what a guru disciple relationship is. And we don't, we're almost afraid to use, I'm afraid to use that word guru because there's so many, negative associations with it in American society. Mm. But all that is, is trusting that someone is beyond you and putting yourself in their hands and not being super defensive when they say something, maybe they want you to not, maybe you want to do a certain practice and they don't, they say that's not good for you right now. And they will say this other practice would be good. Maybe they say right now, cool on the practicing, just chill. Mm. And for a driven, you know, maybe we're a driven American, um, uh, go-getter, you know, who are used to achievement oriented and so forth. And we just are driving ourselves too hard and we don't want to hear. So somebody take it down a notch. You know, there's a lot of things that a teacher can say to you. For example, you know, Zanser Kensen once said, you know, I'm going to tell one student, you need to drink a glass of wine every day. And uh, which is kind of heretical to some <laughs> kinds of Buddhists, you know, but to their practice, they'll benefit from that. And and but another person, I may say, you need to drink coffee. And if they talk to each other, they'll say, "Look, but the the Lama says you're supposed to drink wine." Mm, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And and this kind of thing goes on. But so 
um, it's very personal. And also another big transformation in the last 10 years is the online llama phenomena, mm. which is fantastic because it's brought Dharma into uh, so many households where it wasn't available in country, whole countries that were, don't have any llamas. Uh, and but um, then you you miss out you can miss potentially miss out on that um, personal relationship where somebody's keeping an eye on you and has your enlighten only your enlightenment at heart they don't have any self motivation you know so I just blabbed on and on and oh on. no I, I love this it's it's fascinating yeah. I find it so interesting because it's uh, in some ways it, it, it speaks a lot to, um, I think what, a, what a lot of people I see online are saying where they're like, I don't have any llamas that live nearby. You know, I don't have any spiritual friends. I don't have any saga. I don't know where to go. Or even people that are just afraid the idea of like some people just to go to a center like you did many years ago and I did many years ago and sit down on a cushion and go, okay, I don't know what's going to happen, but okay. <laughs> you know, for some people, you know, that, that, that amount of kind of curiosity and bravery and, uh, you know, that, that kind of scientific method, I guess it, it's a little scary for them. So it, it's, it's interesting to me, you know, when, when you speak of that, let, there are a lot more options, but, you know, there are a lot more options, but maybe there are a lot less options too. And there's kind of a double-edged sword to it. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about the, the final point about people being scared to go to Dharma centers. I think a lot of this stuff, there are people, so many people that are too poor to, to, to go someplace and go to a program in another city and so forth, can't, you know, they, or have, um, are ill or whatever, you know, had circumstances in their lives to prevent them from going. But there's so many more, uh, in, at least in, in my society here in the United States, who can't definitely afford to, to go? Mm. They can. They have the days off from work, and they're scared. And the the downside of the internet llama thing is that they never. Some people may never take that step, and it's. I think that's too bad. Also, it cuts you off from peer support. You know, this these our sangha is the are the um, are our team. Mm. You know, and I, I have. I have a friend now who's kind of in that boat. She is sick and and stuff, but, but even when I invite her, you know, I really have to push her to go to any kind of thing where there's people just because mm. she's uh, she's anxious about it. And um, I understand that, but, she's she, you know, a lot of stuff that you learn from practicing, for example, at a Dharma center, it's really become self-evident when you're just sitting and, for example, and if you're doing a practice recitation from a text and a visualization and so forth, it becomes really um, obvious how to do that, and you don't have to feel embarrassed to ask a question and so forth. If, every, if you're, everybody around you is doing it, you can just say, turn to the person next to you and say, what page are we on and what are we doing? <laughs> you know? And it's not such a big deal. You know, this is just... Um, you know, I think it's really important when you're a beginner, particularly. No, and, it's, it's uh, so yeah. true. I think when I think back to like the early days of going to centers and, and feeling like the doofiest kid, because I was pretty much a lot younger than the people that were there. And I was just like, oh my gosh. And you nailed it right there too. With like, what page am I on? Am I saying this right? Am I like in the right room? Like, you know, all of that. It was like <laughs> exactly. a Laurel and Hardy show of Dharma when it came to like yeah. constantly feeling. And then over time it became confidence and going, okay, like this isn't, you know, too, you know, there's still some weird things going on or things I don't understand, but in time it will reveal itself. And I think for me, I, I think the questions I have right now are, are, do you think a lot of that comes like that kind of unwillingness to engage further comes out of that kind of fear of failure or that kind of ego sense that, Westerners like us may kind of cling to? You know, there's this that I do see, and I have myself, I see in myself and I see in others a real shame about about asking questions and not saying you don't know. Mm. Especially if you've been going to hanging out for a while in the Dharma and you still really have some basic doubt or question and you've never, and, and then you've been going there for five years and you've known this Lama and you still, 
then you're really embarrassed to ask. Mm. <laughs> you hope somebody else will ask in front of you. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, I don't, I think that's maybe universal. Yeah, true yeah. enough. True enough. Yeah. So a lot of what you write as a, a writer um, seems to kind of be uh, about this addressing this kind of uh, youth uh, fear of going to centers or, or this curiosity about the Dharma, but being inquisitive yet not sure what to expect. So I, I guess, could you speak a little bit about uh, your writing career and what, uh, what exactly uh, you're putting pen to paper to? Well, this is what happened. I was... In my last six months of my three-year retreat, and although I'd gone in there prepared to die in retreat like a heroic yogini, <laughs> it actually was pretty cushy, and I didn't, I didn't have any problem <laughs> with dying. <laughs> and so I lived through it, and then was like, okay, well, what am I going to do now? It's a, it's a fresh slate. And because we're not put in the teaching role, and we don't have a big role at our center, I'm kind of thrown out on our own to figure out how to make this, how to integrate this experience and this huge amount of knowledge with our, with our lives in modern America. And um, I, if the thought occurred to me that, um, and it's, of course that's a sign of my unenlightenment that I'm getting great ideas and, <laughs> and planning. This planning, the planning mind is not the enlightened mind, but what the heck. So, <laughs> so I thought this mandala that I'm, practicing this this practice that I'm these practices that I'm doing could translate into a mighty fine novel <laughs> ah. I mean, you got characters all over the place because you know in in I don't know yeah I know you're familiar with it but I don't know if your listeners are that in, in Vajrayana Buddhism quite often you're doing practices that involve as I said before self-visualization as a deity made of light you have a mantra circling in your heart and um, you're reciting a mantra out loud, you're maintaining a visualization of what can be a very complex uh, palace with a, which represents your house and um, all these, uh, yourself as a deity, and you have all these ancillary deities that are um, aspects of enlightenment and they all have characteristics. Each direction has a color and a season and a, you know, uh, characteristics that um, are embodied in different forms. And I thought, well, this wouldn't it be interesting to make a novel where all the characters, um, these characters, are brought to life as you know humans. <laughs> oh wow! And I also that's my sort of. Uh, meditative involvement but I also at the same time think any sort of subtle messages and dreams and so forth nothing too fancy that I that I could benefit teenagers a little bit and I don't have any kids um, and I thought well what if um, I wrote a novel for kids that really gave them the tactile the the live-through experience of what it's like to come into Dharma. And I only really know about Vajrayana Dharma, so they come into Vajrayana Dharma and uh, bring, into, bring the meditation in their lives, the, the, the wonderful, marvelous ideas of benefiting sentient beings into their lives, and um, having their personal, you know, coming in as a screwed-up person, which we all are pretty much by our teenagers, um, <laughs> With our own hang-ups, and then in leaving the novel at the end, having engaged with Vajrayana Buddhism and, ha and having a big, um, interesting adventure, having that be transformed through the experience. So um, I, I wrote, I'm writing four novels in a series called The Cycle of the Sky, mm. and it takes place over a one-year period in four different seasons with four different um, teenage girls who represent the uh, four activity dakinis in, mm -hmm. a, in a, a wrathful dakini mandala. Um, so dakinis are, as you know, um, the embodiment of sort of the uh, feminine 
divine, which represents really the, the wisdom of knowing uh, the empty nature of everything we see. Mm-hmm. So um, each one is a different um, activity, the pacifying, enriching, magnetizing, and wrathful activity. And, um, and of course, the people who read the book will have may have no idea, most likely, that that's actually what's going on. It's just my, it makes it more interesting to me. Mm. (laughs) So there's these huge themes going on, and maybe they come up through as a subtle feeling in the book that that engage people. And um, so I've done uh, magnetizing and and wrathful as my first two books. The first was uh, Excavating Pema Ozer, a book about a teen girl from Oakland who... um, has had a traumatic experience and she's having panic attacks all the time. And she goes to live with her grandmother for the summer. And her grandmother has a Tibetan llama living in the, in a shed in the backyard. Mm-hmm. It turns out her grandma had, has been practicing Tibetan Buddhism for, um, since, uh, the seventies. And, uh, a, a, a heroic adventure ensues <laughs> <laughs> that people can read about. And um, the second one was called um, The Buddha of Lightning Peak, which is about an uh, African-American teen from um, Alameda. And um, she's close to my heart because she's a lesbian, and I, I am. Mm-hmm. And um, that sort of um, engaged me with her. And um, she's had a rough life, and she has a lot of sort of – she's become kind of a competitive person, actually, and, uh, and a little bit um, – sometimes a little jealous from other people. She has conflicts with people a lot when she doesn't mean to. Um, And so she has an adventure uh, trying to save a um, mountain that's doomed for destruction to to a mine. Mm. Uh, And the mine is a, uh, just so, is an iron mine, which uh, represents that iron is symbolically related to this, uh, this direction in a mandala the north direction mm-hmm. so um anyway um she has a lot of really really sort of dangerous strong forceful uh encounters and uh, comes out of the experience transforms so um so it's been a lot of fun i got i'm working on the third one and we'll see where it goes from here excellent i i was really struck on your blog just seeing the um just looking at the level of detail, and uh, I'm a wannabe writer, I've, you know, <laughs> but just looking at the <laughs> level of detail that you put into kind of scripting characters and scenes and, and the various mm. things that you wish to convey that uh, I was really struck by um, the care that you put in, in in looking at taking on, you know, something as precious as the Vajrayana and conveying that to a modern and young audience with, you know, to be able to distill something so boom, you know, is, is, is very, very interesting to me because I, I think in, in a lot of ways, you know, we, we think of it as something very protected and very complex and, you know, there's all the transmission and all the kind of hoopla associated with it. So I was very, very interested to hear that that was kind of the subject matter that you were looking at and looking at it from a feminine approach too was something that I... It's like, oh my gosh, like, just as uh, there are a lot of older people that dig up Harry Potter and, you know, hide the book jacket that they're reading it on the bus or the metro, <laughs> I have a feeling I'm going to be investing in your series, too. Well, to... Good. Well, most of the, uh, most of my readers are adults, as is true of all young adult fiction, but perhaps in my area, maybe a little more so. And what is the um, feedback? And I'm then? working very hard to try to make it a, a gripping tales in addition to bringing in all these elements, and it's, it's a lot harder to write than it would be just to write a straight up young adult fiction book. Um, but it's also the challenge is really fun. What has the reaction been? Like, have you, you know, developed a, uh, a fan base of teen readers I, that are burning twilight to come to you? <laughs> <laughs> There's a few teen readers. Uh, and uh, strangely, I have this sort of little following of um, young like men in their 20s. Oh, wow. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? It's always interesting when you have an intended audience and then you're like, these are the people that are actually really into what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> They're so cool. I mean, they're so supportive and kind. And, you know, I'm also an indie author, so I'm, a, 
you know, you, you really couldn't market this to, you know, any booksellers, any publisher. So I'm, um, I'm um, in the world of indie publishing and, and people don't really look at those books um, without the big marketing campaign that goes behind a mainstream published book. Um, unless you have a um, three or four, three or four books under your belt, mm. especially if they're in a series, they want it to be pretty much completed so they can binge read the whole thing mm-hmm. um, at the end, which is also we're seeing now with um, TV series, you know. So um, right now I have, a, I have a small following, but they're enthusiastic, and I, I'm really happy with the reviews so far on uh, Amazon. Great, um, as they're they're liking it, and so I'm. I'm kind of um, shocked with how much people are liking it. It's Um, interesting even too, like I've been, I'm a bit of a video gamer and uh, I'm very interested sometimes in how, you know, people are taking bits of the Dharma or bits of, you know, whether it's meditation games or those kinds of things. So uh, maybe that's the next frontier for you is looking at writing a game perhaps. (laughs) Well, you know, I talked to, I talked to a Bhutanese high Lama when I was in Bhutan last Mm -hmm. year about my books and he says, Oh no, you got to make a video game, Ah. video games. (laughs) So he's right there with you and he, He's want to work on it, so maybe you should talk to him. Excellent. <laughs> we'll trying. collaborate. You know, I get us together, and uh, I can find. I don't a... know where to begin. I've never. I haven't played a video game since. Uh, what was? What were the video games? Miss Pac-Man. <laughs> Post Pac-Man, there were these ones that were around in the eighties. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, you know, computers were coming along. But yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, I I won't be able. I sh- somebody should definitely do that. I'm sure somebody is. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's interesting to see, like, just from the exploration of games and how they're getting into meatier and weightier subject matter, and they used to be the domain of boys, but now they're a lot more, you know, girl-only video game studios and programmers, and it's it's a wonderful mm. thing to see. So, uh, yeah, we'll talk after the show and <laughs> see well, what know, we can do. <laughs> what's interesting to think about is that there are all these complex visualizations in Vajrayana Buddhism. Would it, could you create a virtual reality? Like, what's this um, headset mm. they're getting oh, now yeah. where it's 3D all, all yeah. surrounding you? Yeah, and I have really a love that. walk into the actual mandala already designed for you. And would that have any beneficial effect? Or is the very process of creating the mandala mentally the point? Oh, that's fascinating because I am like the doofiest, like forgetfulest person when it comes to visualizations, like how many eyes, how many crowns, how many arms. Like, so anything that could help me along, I'd be fully behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is, I think there's two things. I mean, when you're doing a lot of that is coming back to shamatha, you know, mm. like the, in Vajrayana Buddhism, they, you move, I mean, usually a lot of systems, anyway, the Kagi system, for example, and the Gelug system, you start with uh, mindfulness practice, mm. shamatha, and in a classical sense of focusing on your breath, or sometimes they'll use an external object like a stick or a rock mm-hmm. or whatever and just keep bringing your mind back to that. But, you know, these deity practices are also shamatha practices as well as other th- being other things. So mm-hmm. you're, and they're considered to be um, more effective. So the very work of you know, remembering that you're the deity and so what is this, Do how many arms do I have, you know, bringing your attention back, looking back at yourself as a deity and at the deity surrounding you is a shamatha practice. Mm. And that it, it can open you up to, you know, um, a lot of koan-like questions. Like mm. where, where does the, you know, like you create a boundary for your mandala which is has a protection shield around it of various sorts, and uh, where what exactly is outside of the mandala? You know, where, where yeah. does the where does the mandala end? And these kind of questions, you have to engage in the process for these questions to arise. And these questions kind of when you these questions that have no answer, mm. <laughs> you know, no correct answer tweak your mind in a certain way that I think really um, expands your, your the horizon of your awareness mm. um, and shifts your consciousness. 
And so, so the active part of engaging has an effect, but it might also be great just to walk into a mondo. Yeah, no, that that's interesting. It's it's funny how I guess you know we talked a little bit about earlier about you know the the rejection of enlightenment or the turning away from enlightenment in our society or the skeptical mm-hmm. emergence, and mm-hmm. it, it's funny how. In some ways, I wonder if it's a personality approach in some ways of that kind of scientific yet curious mind that kind of has an easier go with kind of like, oh, okay, reincarnation? Well, maybe. I don't know. You know, or, you know, how much time am I going to invest in, you know, ruminating on this, you know? or So it's, it's interesting because just with my own kind of life, I guess, you know, over time, it's become like... You know, how much resistance do I want to put towards the potential for something, you know, being there, you know, <laughs> or how curious do I want to be in, in, in looking at it and, you know, sitting with it and writing about it and all of that. So it's, yeah, I wonder if it is truly a personality or a lived experience or what kind of combination it is, or rebirths <laughs> that lead you to be that way. I'm sure it's all three, you know, and a lot of it's our family structure on the on the middle, middle hypothesis that it's kind of personality, that you know our family structure is um, creates makes us trusting or not trusting and so forth, um, based on the experience that we had with our parents, mm-hmm. and um, we bring that into definitely bring that into our relationship with our lama. Whoa, that's deep stuff. <laughs> Yeah, but that has karmic <laughs> underpinnings for sure. For sure, it has karmic. It has to have. And is that part? Is that explored in the books that you've worked on so far? In terms of, I guess, the personality characteristics of your characters and their family dynamics and their. Hmm. The one I'm writing right now. Yes. Spoiler alert! So. <laughs> Spoiler alert! <laughs> Very much so. It's a good way of putting it. I'm going to make a little note to myself to delve more into that because I'm just refining my... I have a very rough draft of the next one, and uh, I'm uh, refining it right now. Mm-hmm. I guess continuing, like, on, you know, since your audience is young, um, what do you kind of see, you know, with the state of young Buddhism today and uh, and youth today in general that may not be Buddhist or maybe curious about Buddhism, but what are you, are you hopeful or what are you seeing? <laughs> um, I'm hopeful. Yay. Because um, <laughs> I feel there's got to be and there are nascent signs of rebellion against the huge amount of materialistic, consumeristic, um, desire-oriented... Um, culture mm-hmm. that's being foisted on young people. You know, you can only take so much of that crap. So many commercials, mm. so many, um, even you know the, the uh, erotica, erotic stuff, and all that mm. is constantly being pushed on young people and, and boys in particular, mm-hmm. but girls too. Sexualization of everything and the um, desire this craving for financial success, um, it's, it's, it's pointless. Mm. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not anti-sex or money or any of those things. Those are all fine. But it's not going to bring you any kind of happiness in long, for more than a moment. You know, you have this little afterglow mm, <laughs> for a <yeah>. few hours. <laughs> then you have real people to deal with. And, and you have money, and then um, you buy your stuff, and you, this damn cell phone is... Out of date in two years. Mm. Doesn't bring you happiness. I mean, the second one you get is not as good as the first one. It's just like drugs, you know? Yep. <laughs> it's never going to satisfy you. And true dharma and getting this warm, juicy feeling in your heart, opening up to genuine dharma is so much more satisfying. It's going to bring you permanent happiness. Um, and the big, and for those of us who believe in the multi-lifetime big view of things, you know, it's going to take you to enlightenment. And then you can really benefit the world. And a lot of kids always want to benefit the world unless it's beaten out of them. You mm-hmm. know, there's that good heart naturally there, except for a very, I mean, there's a tiny percentage that perhaps are 
have a hard time accessing it because of brain problems, you know, psychopathy or mm-hmm. whatever. But um, by and large, you know, this this natural motivation to help is present in, in children. And when they come to teen years, they really want to help the world. And I see them, look, I did a little poll on, on Reddit's um, Buddhism forum one time. Ooh. Um, how <laughs> many teenagers, because I wanted to ask them some questions about how they found the Dharma, where they were looking for it, what they were doing. And, and I got like 20 responses wow. from these kids. And they, it was very interesting. All different ways was the answer, but a lot they're looking around. They are, they are, they have access to the internet, so they can search around. Even if their parents are, their parents have no idea what they're doing. Mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're looking for something. And um, a lot of times, Dharma material they said was too, too, way too technical. Mm. You know. And scholarly and so forth. And so I really felt like I hit the nail on the head with trying to bring, you know, I'm, I'm talking to you adult to adult and I'm using a lot of technical jargon and all this stuff. But in my books, I, I, um, I try to, to really annihilate that, mm. that kind of talk. And so I had not to dumb it down at all, but to stop using jargon mm. and um, bring it home on a real organic heart centered level. And I hope that um, others are doing the same. The way that I mostly encounter teens in Dharma in real life is at our Dharma Center in the summer and year-round, but mostly in the summer they have a a teen camp. And this is pretty common for larger Dharma Centers and groups. Uh, I know Zonsar Cancer and Pachetis did something in Mexico, and um, many of the um, Theravadan and and, uh, Zen groups have youth groups. And in the Vajrayana... There's a tremendous amount of play to be had. I mean, the whole thing is like a big game in some ways. It makes meditating fun. Mm. So um, kids, you know, they may not sit on, in on the whole long three-hour puja at the Dharma Center. They won't. But they come in during when, the, when you know, have, have you ever been to a Sok Ganachakra puja? Well, no. in, in straight-up Vajrayana Buddhism, mm-hmm. they have these uh, Soks. They're called, and this is a it's a ritual feast. And at one point, there's food, including usually some goodies in there, you know, <laughs> where each person gets a gets a plate of food. And um, so the the llamas, the the kids have a separate program, and then you know, like towards the very end of the puja, the food is distributed, and the kids come in at that point and they do their prostrations. They learn how to do to bow, and um, they sit and eat their food and and then there's like 10 minutes left in the puja and they're done so they get a really good a positive association from being a little tiny kid mm. <laughs> all the way up um uh to preteen i'd say they're still interested in that and um they uh, get a taste of, oh dharma means good food mm, yeah <laughs> <laughs> you got a positive association you come in there's this music playing and Everybody's loving that they're being there, so they're getting lots of positive vibes from everybody there for, for being there. And uh, so, and then they have their own little camp where the, the lamas just teach them, you know, at the level appropriate. And they have a teen group, um, whoever depends on, you know, who's who's got kids at that point, you know, what age is going mm. on right then. But um, a lot. Several of them have stayed on. They and they've gone on to go to like Naropa College. Um, and or gone on to study in Nepal um, at uh, Rongjun Yeshe, go to college there and stuff like that. So quite a lot of them in this in the last 20 years have really gone on to become really um, good practitioners. It's interesting because it sounds a bit like um, in Shambhala there was the uh, theory of the Dharma brats, <laughs> which yeah, yeah. It was, they didn't uh, do very well. <laughs> And it, it kind of sounds like I'm, I'm kind of curious now, and you're bringing up the scientific uh, Buddhist poll, Reddit poll in me of wondering, I, yeah. I wonder if, you know, how many people are, you know, the Dharma brats that were kind of born into it versus organically, like, people that just kind of, like, fell into it, you know, in terms of, you know, later yeah. teens. It's, yeah. 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 It's interesting. Well, in our, in our society, my Tama Usulan community in mm. California, they are um, kids of the practitioners gotcha 
And, but, uh, yeah, the, the, the Dharma Brat phenomena, for those who don't know, unlike you, you know, it came up, up with these, with, they were the children of the older generation of um, baby boomers who were Trunk Rinpoche's students. So those people are in their 60s now, right? 60s, 70s. Mm-hmm. And um, they came in a wild bunch, and he was a wild llama, as we know. So they were, you know, it was uh, a lot of uh, hippie-era experimentalism going on, and those kids didn't, perhaps didn't all get the greatest parenting in retrospect that mm. they should have gotten. And, and a lot of them got into drugs. This is not a secret. They were talking about it in their Dharma Bratz group early on. Yeah. Got into drugs and problems, and they or, or they rejected Dharma and this kind of stuff. So... Of course, there's excellent ones, I'm sure, too, that also mm. came out of that system. But um, nowadays, I think things have evolved in a positive direction. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I'd lived in Halifax for a while, which was the seat of Shambhala. And I was always so jealous of Dharma Prats. Like, it was something, it's like, oh, man, your parents, like, actually knew? Or your <laughs> grandparents actually sat in that, that session where Trumpa shot peas at them through a little <laughs> straw? You know, you're just like, you know, it was that added letter, layer of cred, you know. And then you realize, oh, yeah, you know, you you've walked away from the Dharma, you know, because you just didn't find it cool or, you know, for whatever reason, it just didn't speak to you anymore. Or, you know, you lived in it and you were saturated in it and it just, you know, it, it didn't make for it any better of a practitioner, but my little, you know, self-loathing little mind at the time, it was like, Oh, the Dharma brass. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm, what the thought that comes to mind, which is slightly tangential is that if now your llama shot keys at you through a whatever straw, <laughs> it might not be the highlight of your existence, you know? True you might enough. not like it, you know? And in fact, this today's audience of Dharma is probably more uptight than they were then, right? So the llama acting a little strange, in Trump Rinpoche's case, being drunk and so forth, is um, a lot less acceptable than it was for that peer yeah. group then. It's interesting. I I think about that quite often where I'm like, huh, you know, what kind of practitioner would I have been during that and how would I have turned out and would that have helped me kind of break some of my like introverted, like, you know, weird kind of like, you know, neurotic little ways or would it made me even more neurotic and weird? (laughs) It's interesting, the path not taken, I guess. And (laughs) I'm lucky with the crew that I have right now that I haven't been uh, pushed too terribly yet. So no peas have been shot at me. So (laughs) we'll see after this podcast, though, I might get a box. When you get, you know, we are, I think, I'm sure you're wrapping up, but I just wanted to say mm, no. that, you know, when you do become the senior student of a llama, if you have that good fortune, mm. uh, maybe you already are, I don't know, but um, then they become more and more, have higher and higher expectations of you, and your expectations may come with, along with them displaying different kinds of behavior than they would in public, mm. and um, then you have something to work with your mind about, um, so that there is the outer conduct of what somebody does when they are in a room with a hundred people who don't, many of whom may be newcomers. And then there's the people that, you know, you've finished your preliminary practices. Mm. You've been this person's student for you know a long time and they may shock you. They may do some surprising stuff to kind of wake you up. I mean, it's all for your, benefit if you have a genuine wisdom mom and of course you have to be very 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 careful and cautious about llamas but but these days we have uh who you select as your personal teacher Mm. these days we have um you know google yeah so you can look up and you should look up you know this llama's name or teacher's name in another tradition um you know, so and so Lama, so and so Rinpoche mm. controversy, Lama, so and so Rinpoche. I don't know misconduct. Mm. You know, whatever like that. And then um, it's all there. You know, all and it may be founded or one report. You know, you should keep a question in your mind about whether it was the person reporting it. You know, but if there's if there's multiple problems reported with this Lama, then you know, think twice about it. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's so wise that, um, 
that, you know, a lot of the recommendation is to really kind of take your time and not rush into that kind of relationship because it um, can certainly go askew. <laughs> and it's yeah, uh, yeah. very worthwhile advice. Uh, have you read The Guru Drinks Bourbon? I haven't read it yet. Oh, it's so good. Like it? And it's all about that. And it's it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's good stuff. It was... Uh, it was pretty much focused on that kind of guru-student relationship and how to know if you're in the right one and what may happen and what it's, yeah, it's as, as usual with his writing, it's a doozy. So. Well, he's a doozy and he's one of those people that's not going to uh, tread lightly with you. Yeah, I was a student. going through and trying to find some <laughs> photos and I was looking through photos within the book and the photos are very artsy and, and one of them I'm like, Oh my goodness. I'm like, who's this lovely, like very short haired Asian oh. lady with lipstick. And she's yeah. got like, you know, some kind of like ap apparatus on. And I'm like, no, <laughs> this is not a lady. <laughs> this is actually, yeah. so it was, it was very interesting to have those kinds of boundaries and those kinds of thoughts and the kind of like questions and all that kind of go, Oh, you're doing your job. You know? <laughs> yeah. You're doing your job. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think I covered quite a bit of land here with you. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to kind of touch on that maybe we didn't get into? Any area or um, anything else you wanted to maybe speak about that maybe flickered during our discussion? I just want to say, you know, that um, it's a beautiful thing to... Um, live your life having faith in something, trusting a path, having guidance, knowing you're on the right track or you're on, correcting when you're on the wrong track and feeling that you are going to go on and attain enlightenment eventually. It's inevitable if you have good heart and you practice sincerely. And then you can, and that you will, in this life or some future life, be able to really benefit vast numbers of people and animals and and inconceivable beings beyond those realms, if, you know, which we have to trust ex exist. Um, it, it's just, um, it's a purpose in life and it's uh, coupled with meditation. It's I just can't speak highly enough for it. I think that's, I mean, it's wonderful. I, I, I think with the conversation we had, it really makes me aware of, you know, the amount of positivity you have in the sense of the belief that you have that, you know, we all have this potential for Buddhahood, for enlightenment, and we shouldn't, you know, kind of feel we can't and fall into that kind of, you know, either self-loathing or, or that sense of like, yeah, you know, I can't do that, you know, so, which is especially kind of important for youth, which I think we have a tendency to kind of, you know, either want to protect them or, or keep them down and not kind of be, you know, wanderers or, or kind of free. So I think, mm. you know, I have to bow to you with, you know, the amount of compassion that you've you've shown in, in writing with the intention of helping young people and, and to kind of, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think deep bow to you for that. It's, it's important work. And I think it's work that, you know, I'd like to see more Buddhists get involved with in, in the sense of engaging creativity too. Cause like you said earlier, a lot of it, you know, is knowing the audience. <laughs> Absolutely. Great. Thank you so much. Thank I'm so you. honored to be invited to speak on your wonderful podcast. I look forward to listening to future episodes. Excellent. Well, hopefully with the uh, following books that come about, uh, we'll get maybe you to come on and do a reading or something, or we'll see how the story ends with the next two that, uh, that are released. Fantastic. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. And there you go, another episode of Dharmage. It was a good one, wasn't it? As I sit here listening to it and editing it with the hockey game going on in my peripheral vision, I'm reminded of uh, that great conversation I had and, and how 
absolutely nourishing it was to have somebody work to bring the Dharma to youth is uh, a truly remarkable thing. So definitely check out Yudrun's books and uh, follow her on Twitter if you aren't already. And um, yeah, until next time, I am Tanya signing off for Dharmage. Take care.